Welcome to the Build a Life After Loss podcast, where we help women who have lost children to build a life of purpose and joy. Our aim is to encourage your hope in the future and strengthen your confidence. I'm your host, Julie Clough. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Episode 9, Positive Psychology. By the time you've listened to this, Thanksgiving will be behind us, and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, whatever that looked like for you. Um, I hope there was opportunity to reflect on your blessings this past Thanksgiving. We had a wonderful Thanksgiving with our four adult children, their spouses, and their children, and way too much food, as I'm sure you might be able to relate Now we're firmly into December with Christmas right around the corner and people are always asking if I'm ready for Christmas. And honestly, I haven't even started. All my kids, I had six children and all of my children were born in 60 day window of time between September 20th and November 20th. And so I don't even think about Christmas until December comes. But people that know me know that I'm uh, a horribly late gift giver as it is. I'm pretty good about Christmas, though. I usually do have all my gifts ready and shipped out and that kind of thing. But as far as getting birthday presents to people or cards on time, you can just forget it. That's not my forte for some reason. Anyway, just the, you know, the holidays were kind of right in the middle of it. And that I'm hoping that as, as the holidays progress, as the season continues upon us, that you are being kind to yourself no matter what. So today we'll talk about positive psychology. We're going to talk about what it is, how to, how understanding it might help us as we struggle to overcome our grief and then build a life of purpose and joy. As I'm talking about positive psychology today, you may think to yourself, well, Julie just has a natural positive attitude. Let me assure you that it does not come naturally to me. I don't know if you remember, but one of my very first episodes I recorded was about having a bad attitude because I know it well, unfortunately. So having a positive attitude or a positive outlook or a sense of happiness has been an effort for me. And it's been a, a skill that I have tried to incorporate into my life. So let's get started talking about positive psychology and how it can help us. So stay with me for a minute while we talk about the history I know some people love history. I love history, but a lot of people don't. So, but I do think understanding the background helps us. So I'm going to go through it briefly. Traditionally, psychology has been focused. What we think of traditionally as psychology has been focused on diagnosis and treatments of mental disorders. But did you know the study of psychology as a science is less than 200 years old? Experimental psychology, the scientific psychology that we think of now, began in 1830s. But the phil- philosophical aspects of psychology, the workings of the mind, and and the the philosophers that have studied that, that's been around since written history, as far as I know. You can think of Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, and other great minds that try to help humanity understand their minds. But as a science, that's much more recent. 
What we know of as the science of positive psychology has been around for much, much less time than that. I think you'll be shocked to know how recent that is. So what is positive psychology? It is the study of the attributes that allow or enable people to flourish. It's all based on the belief that as human beings, we want to have wonderful lives. We want to thrive and live fulfilling lives that we want to live our best life. And I think most of us could say, yes, I mean, that's what human beings want to do. And that's the basis of positive psychology is that as human beings, as people, we want to thrive. Positive psychology studies what makes life most worth living. Again, it's concerned with thriving or flourishing. The first mention of positive psychology was from Abraham Maslow. He's best known for his hierarchy of needs. You probably remember the pyramid. At the base is our physiological needs, those things that sustain life like food and water and shelter. And then the next level up comes safety, then love and belonging, then esteem, and then self-actualization. Remember the idea that if our most basic physical needs aren't met, they will take over our consciousness until they are. So we build off of a foundation of first having our physical needs met, then our need for safety, followed by our need for love and belonging, etc. The more recent study of positive psychology is built from the framework of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So that's why it starts with Maslow's. Then in 1998, Martin Seligman became the president of the American Psychological Association and used the positive psychology as the theme of his presidency. That's when it really began to get some attention. That's when people started paying attention. But think about it, 1998, that's only 20 years ago. So this emphasis on the positive aspects of our mental capacity by the science of psychology only really in earnest started 20 years ago which I find completely fascinating. In the first sentence of his book, Authentic Happiness, Seligman claimed, for the last half century, psychology has been consumed with a single topic only, mental illness. Seligman wanted to see psychology continue its previous desire to nurturing talent and improving normal life, which sounds amazing. I think that's a great emphasis. In his book, called Flourish, with the subtitle of A Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being, Seligman introduces the concepts of PERMA. That's P-E-R-M-A, which is an acronym for his five elements of well-being theory. They are positive emotion, engagement, meaning, positive relationships, and accomplishment. So his well-being theory is that if we have elements of each of these five things in our life, then we're going to experience well-being. In the book, he also discusses the difference between well-being and happiness. And he argues that the measurement of happiness too often is tied to mood, which may not accurately reflect a person's well-being. If you think about it, you know somebody that's just like super bubbly by nature and someone else who's a little more laid back, but they still have great well-being. There's, you know, so he was concerned about this idea of tying 
the, the measurement of happiness to mood because some of that may just be nature. So a lot of thoughtful, interesting stuff for sure. The kind of stuff I geek out about, frankly. So Seligman, along with Maslow, is considered one of the five founding fathers of positive psychology. So that's the end of the history lesson, I promise. What's all this got to do with you, though? I find that the the principles of positive psychology gives us a framework for how to rebuild our lives, how to approach our lives, and the things to focus on. I don't know if you've ever seen the TED Talk with the positive psychologist Sean Aker. I love that TED Talk. He is hilarious and brilliant, and I've probably watched it 10 times. He talks really fast too, so... That's another reason to watch it more than once because it's, it's hard to hear all of his words. He, he talks really fast. If you haven't watched it, it's totally worth it. And I'll add a link in the show notes at buildalifeafterloss.com slash post slash nine. I've watched it, like I said, several times and I've read his books, Happiness Advantage and Before Happiness. The funny thing is, is I've watched his TED talk so many times that when I read his books, I hear it in his voice which is, I know, kind of silly. So I'm not a funny guy like Sean Aker for sure, but I wanted to kind of give you an overview of some of the concepts that he that he shares in that video. And also to kind of give you a little bit of um, a background, a lot of his, his, in fact, I can't even remember the name of his talk, but it's something about happiness in the workplace or something. So a lot of it is geared around the workplace, but I find it very applicable regardless of our circumstances. But he talks about how in research and psychology that they graph, and he does it in such a funny way. Anyway, they graph their results, right? And they have an outlier that might be tracking above average and he says they basically look for ways to eliminate that outlier and they, they becomes the, what he calls the cult of the average. So normal is, is nearly average. If we study average, we will always remain average. Then they look for those who fall under average. He says the, the, the psychologists are looking for the depressed, the disordered, and, and he, Oh, hopefully both. And he suggests that we don't delete the outlier that is thriving, but that we study it. And how can we find those that are thriving and study them so we can figure out how to duplicate or learn from it? He discovered that it's not reality that shapes your reality, but the lens in which you view world, the world that shapes your reality. So in other words, he said, if we can change the lens, we can change your happiness. And therefore, he could also change business and educational outcomes. Um, he, he noticed when he was at Harvard that students were focus, focused on competition and stress, not the opportunity. So a lot of people would say, well, how could anybody be depressed at Harvard? Look at this wonderful university, look, all this huge op- educational opportunity. And yet the students were so focused on the competition and the stress that they missed out on focusing on the opportunity and the, the benefits that they were receiving. 
People think it's our external world that predicts our happiness, but the opposite is actually true. He suggested that 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted by the way your brain processes the world and that the absence of disease is not health. We think we have to be successful in order to be happy, but he suggests that we reverse the formula. If we're happy, then we can be successful. If we can find a way to be positive in the present, then our brains work more effectively and we can work harder, faster, and more intelligently. So what does that have to do with us? If you are in the throes of grief right now, this information may not feel good. In fact, it might feel depressing to you because it's just another example of, look, I've got to be happy in order to blah, 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 right? I'm going to encourage you to be totally okay with where you are right now. Until we can develop some self-compassion and patience with ourselves, it's very difficult to notice any other alternatives. So, So stay with me as I share some tools we can glean from positive psychology. It's not all bad news. There's things that we can do. I also found an article by Christopher Peterson, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. And in this article, he outlined some of the things that have been learned through the research about psychology of well-being. And here are just a few that I wanted to share with you. Most people are happy. Now, when we think about, and this is just me talking, this isn't from his article, but when we think about being happy, uh, I heard someone say one time, if you're married, you want to be married most of the time, but there are occasions when you don't want to be married. So as long as you want to be married more often than you don't, then (laughs) you're probably in pretty good shape. And I think it's the same thing with happiness. I think in general, when most people are happy, that doesn't mean that they're ecstatic 95% of the time, they may be happy in whatever form that is 60% of the time. Anyway, going on to another one of his points, happiness is a cause of good things in life and not simply along for the ride. So happiness is the catalyst for the good. Also, most people are resilient. I love this because I think this really speaks to our situation. When you've lost a child, you really have no choice but to develop resilience, right? That's the ability to recover. And the fact that you're alive and that you survived and that you're here is just a testament to your resilience. He also suggests that religion matters. This is just coming out of the studies on positive psychology. So if you have religious practices, those are the good things to continue to practice. Okay, here he also says good days have common features. Here are some of the features that he suggests. Feeling autonomous, competent, and connected to others. So anything we can do to increase our feeling of being autonomous, feeling our feeling of competence, and our feeling of connecting with others will help in our sense of well-being. And this very last point is my favorite point of all, and that is the good life can be taught. And in that vein, I want to share with you some of the practices that Sean Aker suggests in his TED Talk that can train our brain for happiness. Now again, if you're in the throes of grief, this may not be the time for you to be thinking about this, but 
If you can even choose one of these things to do for a minute a day, I think you'll see the benefits of it. So the first one that he suggests is that we each day find three things that we're grateful for. Next week, I'm going to talk a little more about the power of gratitude. It is tremendous. And I think a lot of times we just think in terms of, oh, I'm happy. I'm thankful for the flowers in my front yard. I'm thankful for this. Those are all great, but I want to go beyond that. And we'll talk more about that next week. Journaling one, at least one experience each day. So this is very, very brief journaling. And what you're going to look for is one positive experience that happened that day. One good thing. You're walking down the street and Susie smiled at you. You got a phone call from your sister. You did well on a test. You know, whatever it is, just choose one small thing, large or small, I should say, one positive thing that happened during that day. Exercise, moving our bodies physically. Again, just walking down the street can give our brain a lift and train our brain for well-being. Meditation. This helps us get over the cultural ADD. If you're new to meditation, it can maybe seem strange, but I I find meditation really relaxing. I am not a big meditation guru by any stretch of the med- imagination, but I did have a friend tell me about an app called Insight Timer. I'll put that in the show notes as well, but it's a free app and it offers all these different meditations for morning, for evening. If you have five minutes, you can say, I've got five minutes. It will tell you what's available. And there's just hundreds of meditations from different people. And also there's music. So if you just need something relaxing to maybe quiet your mind so you can sleep, that's another great place to find something like that as well. The fifth practice that Sean Aker suggests in his TED talk and in his books, these are also outlined in his books, is random acts of kindness. And one of the things he recommends, and because it is work-related, his his video itself is work-related, is to write one positive email every day. So every day, what they were recommending in the workplace was that people come in and they think of someone that they're thankful for or someone that they want to send a positive message to and they send that email. And so each day they're sending that. That's 365. Well, maybe not because they're not there on the weekends, but if they're in the on there during the week, five days a week, they're sending a positive email. In a month that's, you know, 20 plus emails of positive influence after a year there you go. What's 20 times 52. So I I also wanted to share one other quick story with you that really impressed me. Um, John James, he is the founder and author of the grief recovery method and the grief recovery handbook. And he told this story about meeting an old Catholic priest that told him the better you are at being in the moment the more of the 20 miracles a day you'll see that are happening right in front of your face. Now, when he first heard that, he was like, 20 miracles a day? Like, what in the world is this guy talking about? But he decided to experiment with it. And he thought, I'm just going to look to see if I can find any miracles during my day. The next few days, he noticed a couple here and a couple there. But after some time went by, 
he was actually seeing 20 miracles a day. Think about what that does to your brain. When your brain is actively, you've given it the job of actively scanning for miracles in your day. That in and of itself is a miracle. And he said, not only do I see all 20 miracles now, I expect them. And I thought that was just so beautiful. Like I said, next week, we're going to explore the power of gratitude. I hope you'll join me for that episode also. I frankly, I've had a little bit of an inner turmoil over the title of that episode, The Power of Gratitude, because I think it's become so cliche that now we hear gratitude, we're like, oh, same old, same old, same old, and we're not paying any attention to it anymore. And there is tremendous power and gratitude. And I want to share some of my experiences with that with you. So we'll be doing that next week. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks for joining me today on Build a Life After Loss. Remember to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and write a review if you're an Apple. I would love that. Your feedback means the world to me. I I want you to know that. Also, visit the website, buildalifeafterloss.com to try three daily practices to begin building a life after loss. Have a wonderful week.